Can you hear me better when I do that? Good morning, all. I will eventually wake up. Somewhere around minute 18, I understand, is when I really wake up in my own sermons. We are uh, going to be in the book of Acts uh, today, in Acts chapter 10, and uh, we're going to work our way through that uh, whole chapter, and uh, not in very great detail, but there are some things that we want to point out that, uh, that matter for us today regarding the church. Remember, this is uh, January, you remember that, of course, but uh, this is the time of year where uh, we tend to conclude our month with a uh, celebration, really, of uh, the state of the church. And so that's our evening meeting that's upcoming. And so it gives us a time throughout the course of uh, January to think about the church in various aspects. And this year, um, we are uh, doing exactly the same thing today. I want to talk about the fact that the church is universal. So just the universal nature of the church in our passage today in Acts chapter 10 uh, really hits on that uh, that exact thing. So I'm going to read for us in Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 9, and I'm just going to read 9 through 16 for us this morning. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Let's pray. Father, we pause in our morning with your word open before us, desirous to hear from you. And so we ask that in these next few minutes, your spirit would take your word, communicate it to us, apply it to us, help us to see. I pray particularly that we would see this morning the glorious things that, that have been accomplished by your son Jesus in redeeming far-flung sinners like us. So we ask that you would help us this morning, that you would be pleased to work in our hearts, even in these next few minutes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we are talking about the universality of the church, and it... Uh, one of the things that struck me about the, uh, our time living in Russia, we lived in Russia for a total of four years, and uh, and one of the things that struck me about life there was, well, how different it was from life here, and what a shocker, right? But uh, And there were lots of ways that it was different, but there's one that really stands out to me, particularly when I read this passage, and that is that in uh, the United States, we have traditionally been a melting pot. 
And people come here and uh, they may look different, have different backgrounds, but we don't tend to think in terms, uh, we haven't always thought, so maybe that's changing nowadays, but we don't tend to think in terms of uh, the fact that uh, that person is from this country and that person is from this country or their family is from there. I don't recognize Bulgarian last names. That's, that's just a last name that happens to be different from mine. And, and so uh, uh, traditionally in the United States, it's been a melting pot. An American's an American. It doesn't really matter what color your eyes or hair or skin is, right? That may be changing, and that's not my point. But uh, my point is that in Russia, one thing I noticed was I might run into someone on the street, and uh, particularly in our city, there were a lot of Koreans. And uh, I say Koreans, they may have been fourth-generation Russians, but they were Koreans. In the Russian mindset, it was very different. You could look and see. Uh, we would notice that person is Asian or they're of Korean descent or something like that. But in, in the Russian mentality, that guy's Korean. His name is Russian. His language is Russian. Everything he does is Russian. His family's been Russian for 100 years, but he's Korean. You can tell by looking at him. And so that was always a big shocker to me because you, you could never really become Russian. And, and in, in part, I get it because, you know, Russian is also an ethnicity. And so you can talk about your roots and things like that. And we don't really have that exactly in the same way in the States. But our, one of the things that stood out to me was how it's kind of impossible in that context to just be one body, at least, at least in the public sphere. Well, when we come to our passage today in Acts chapter 10, uh, even with what I just read there about this vision that Peter had, we can see that something is changing. Uh, This is in the book of Acts. This, of course, is after the life and ministry of Jesus. This is after he has has died for the sins of his people, that he's been buried, that he's been raised, he's ascended, and now he is working through his church to accomplish his purposes on earth. And, uh, And so this is part of what's going on. And one thing that we need to keep in mind at this point is that uh, the church had been almost exclusively Jewish to this point. If you follow the, the course of the history from, from Acts chapter 2 on, on to now, the church had been almost exclusively Jewish, had uh, been almost exclusively in uh, Jerusalem even. And so not, not exclusively, but almost. That's where it had been focused. And so our passage uh, today... Uh, brings a change in the mindset of the people. And particularly here with Peter, there's a a change that happens here. And so we look to uh, our passage, and we start in chapter 10. In verse 1, we pick up the story there. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So here's a a Gentile man. This Cornelius is a Gentile man. And his name, he's there in Caesarea. He's a centurion of the Italian cohort. Verse two, he's a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So he's not just a Gentile. He's a special kind of Gentile. There's a a unique thing happening in his life where he is in prayer to God. He is um, uh, praying in, in a, in a way that's very similar to the way the Jews around him would pray. He, he um, was participating in. He was he was praying along with the Christian Jews. He was uh, he was a very interesting character in his life. He didn't just keep all of his money for himself. He gave it. He 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 seemed to understand a great deal about 
uh, God. And that was uh, largely because of the influence of the Jews around him. He had learned from them, and he had, uh, he had learned what they had taught him, and he was practicing it. And so here's this man who's a very unique character, and, and, uh, and yet he's a Gentile. And to this point in Acts, that's unusual. About the ninth hour, verse 3 of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror. And said, what is it, Lord? And he said, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And so here's this Gentile, here's, uh, he's a God-fearer, he's, he's a, a Roman military offer, uh, officer, he's devout, um, and he was generous with the poor, he was a unique kind of character, and he has this vision where an angel appears to him. And he says, the angel says to him, You're, you, we've heard your prayers basically, we, we see, we I speak that way, this is of course all under God's rule, but... Uh, Cornelius, what you need to do is you need to send somebody to Joppa and grab Simon Peter, who's staying with another Simon, and go bring him. So here we see this Cornelius is a very unique character, as you might imagine, the first one of a kind to be. And he is a unique character. It seems like God has already been at work in his heart. Before this, before the gospel even shows up, God has been at work in him, and Cornelius is a unique and interesting character, and we're going to see that he's actually pivotal. And we continue on in, uh, with what we read at the beginning, and I won't read it again, but uh, flash over the next day as they were uh, on their journey and approaching the city, Peter has his vision. Lunchtime, he's up on the, on the, the, the rooftop, and he's, he's praying. And while he's doing that, he has this vision. And you're all familiar with the vision. You probably colored the sheets when you were kids in Sunday school. This, this sheet being lowered down with all kinds of food. Right? All kinds of animals. Creeping things even. Birds and things like that. Clean and unclean mixed together. Lowered right down and Peter has this vision. And there's a, a voice from heaven that says, Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. Well... What do you think Peter's going to do with that? He's looking at a you know, smorgasbord there, but it's not all clean. All right? Unclean animals mixed in, and, and what's he going to do? Well, I don't know exactly what he was thinking. We have his words here, but it sure seemed like he saw it as a test. God was testing him, and he, he said, Oh, no, far be it from me, Lord. I've never done such a thing. I wouldn't dare eat unclean foods, common foods. And you have this statement from heaven that says, what God has made clean, do not call common. That's the message. And then the sheet is raised up. And this happens a total of three times that this interaction happens. Peter is supposed to get the point. And so he sees this thing and he's thinking about it. And, and he has this great uh, vision that, that's going to be significant for our story. And it's going to be significant for him. And that brings us to uh, verses 17 through 29 and the meaning of the vision. The meaning 
of the, the vision. I love how verse 17 says, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what he had seen might mean, why would he be perplexed? Right? You and I don't think in terms of clean foods or unclean. If it's been washed, you know, I'm probably going to eat it. <laughs> but that's not, that's not what he's talking about. There's a, there's a, you know, the, the Old Testament law had various laws for the nation of Israel and included in there was a dietary law, dietary restrictions intended to set apart the people of Israel from the world around them. And so eat these animals. You can eat this list of animals and these types of animals in this way, but don't eat these other things. Those are unclean. Don't eat them. Now, whether there were uh, other reasons not to eat those, I don't know. But for one thing, it set apart the nation of Israel from the nations around it so that um, when you looked at this family, they wouldn't eat your ham sandwich. You know, which is fine because I'll just eat my own ham sandwich. <laughs> but they, but you would go there and you, and you would have, you know, different food offered. And and uh, I don't know if you've had the experience of offering someone who's a vegetarian meat in some way. It's it's always uncomfortable. I remember one time we had a friend over who was vegetarian 20, 20 years ago more. And, um, and we had um, Caesar salad. And she wouldn't eat our Caesar salad. And we thought, it's a salad, but it's got anchovies in it. It's got meat in the dressing, and I had no idea, right? So it, it causes a distinction. You can see that there's something unique. Well, uh, there was certainly something unique in what Peter had just seen, even just about the, the dietary change where the Lord is saying to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Don't make a distinction between what is common and what is clean. And that would have been perplexing. And so we see verse 17, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. So while he's scratching his chin up on the roof, someone knocks at the gate, and it's these uh, servants who have been sent from Cornelius. Verse 18, and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men, and he said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? So Peter has been prepared. This vision that he has seen is not just about food. It's about food, and it relates to dietary laws and things like that, and that's why Christians nowadays don't, don't abide by the dietary laws of the Old Testament, that and other reasons. But here it's very explicit, very clear that we don't have to abide by those anymore. And, but it means something more, such that Peter would go down and even talk with Gentiles. Verse 22, and they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. Now, the interaction between Jews and Gentiles could be uh, stilted at times because there's a great distance between the two people. And uh, when you have the dispersion, when you have the, what's called the diaspora, where Jews have been scattered across the Roman Empire, you're going to have that happen uh, all the time, where Jews run into Gentiles and, and they see what, uh, you know, that it comes to a head. How are they going to, are they going to go over to dinner at their house? Well, no, they're not. They might talk on the street, perhaps. Going to their house for dinner, you know, I, that's going to be a problem. 
right? And so there's a real uh, there's a real distinction there. And so when they show up to to talk to Peter at Simon's house, and they say, "Come to Cornelius's house," that should say that should raise a a, a question in our minds: Is he going to do it? Jews don't do that stuff. The two don't intermingle like oil and water. Verse 23, so he invited them in to be his guests. We have an indication. He's on his way. He, he invites them in. And the next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So some Jew, Jewish Christians went with him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Right, So Cornelius knows that they're coming. He knows how long the journey is. He's gathered together his friends and brought them all together. And, uh, and what's Peter going to do? Well, um, when Peter entered, he went right on into the house. He gets there. He has learned from what the Lord has said. He's understood that the Lord wasn't only talking about food. What God has made clean do not call common. And so Peter goes on in. Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up. I too am a man. Don't, don't worship me. And as he talked to him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why did you send for me? So there's been a change already in Peter's mind. Peter has, has needed to be educated on this. And we see that some issues are going to arise with this later on. And uh, Paul talks about it in Galatians, and we read about it later on here. Uh, so uh, sometimes we need to learn a lesson a couple of times. And it seems like Peter may be one of those. But, but he is learning not just about food, not just about dietary restrictions. The Lord meant to tell him about people. Unclean people, common people, versus those who are clean, those who are holy. And so that kind of sets up uh, what's, what's going to happen, the, what's going to happen at this meeting at Cornelius' house. It's a, it's the, the point is of the vision, not just about food, but that Gentiles are no longer unclean, which would have been a new idea would have been a new revelation for the church at this time. They had been Jews for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They had been raised in that context. They were, they were good Jews. They knew the law. They, they understood it. And, and, and they understood the separation between Jew and Gentile. And now here you have uh, the Lord giving a vision that indicates no longer call them unclean. Gentiles are no longer unclean. So what's going to happen? Well, we have Peter going on, in, going on into the house there, and we have the Gentiles hearing the gospel. So Peter is faithful. He's a faithful uh, missionary, a faithful apostle. And so he goes in, in verse 30, we read, and, and uh, Cornelius explains to him, he says, four days ago, at about this hour, I was 
praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. You've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Now, just a side note as we're working through this, that's kind of uh, something for us to pay attention to. I was tempted, even as I was reading it, to skip over the section where Cornelius said, oh, let me tell you what happened. Because I just read what happened, right? Just a few verses earlier, I knew it. And I was tempted to skip over it. But an author sometimes will repeat himself. And in this case, Luke is the author and God is the author. Will sometimes repeat himself so that we catch what's going on. It's meant to be called to our mind again. And that's what happens here. That We need to remember the situation that Peter has walked into a Gentile's house. Peter has been told to do it, and the Gentile was told to go get Peter and have him come to your house. God is at work in bringing this together. And so we need to keep that in mind before we start. We see the life and the ministry of Christ. So what 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 is Peter going to talk about? What's he going to do now that he's got this, you know, a captive audience of these people who've been gathered together specifically to hear from them? What's he going to talk about? Well, he's Peter. He's going to talk about Christ. Right? We're Christians. We're going to talk about Christ. And that is exactly what he does. So Peter, verse 34, opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and, and does what is right is acceptable to him. That's going to be explained later on what he means by that. Whoever fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Verse 36, As for the word that, you, that he sent to Israel, preaching Good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Not just Jews, He's Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him. And we are witnesses of all that He did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. The life and ministry of Jesus is what he starts off with. And they knew about it. They had heard about it. This was in the news. This wasn't a mystery. This wasn't something that happened in a faraway land, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a galaxy far away and, lo- you know, long ago. Or I messed that up. I didn't think about that beforehand. I'd rather not think about that movie right now. It wasn't like it happened under a rock. People knew about it. So what does that matter to us? Because it was a long time ago for us. It was 2,000 years ago for us. So what do we do? It happened in history. It happened in history. It's not a story that we once heard. It's not a fable that has some significance. It happened in history. And they knew about it. Everybody around this time would have known about it. Particularly as near as they were to Israel. And so it happened in history. That's, a, that's something very unique about the gospel of Christ. It's not an ethic. I hear, I hear people uh, talking about, you know, they really like Jesus' teaching, and he talks about love, and he talks about forgiveness, and, 
And I'm wondering if they've read the rest of the things that Jesus said, because he also talked about judgment and holiness. He talked about hell. So do they, do they mean that? Or they, I think they mean the other stuff. But, but I'm always concerned because they just want to address his words as if they were, you know, Aesop's fables. Interesting po- uh, stories with a point. When in fact Jesus walked this earth, the God-man, and interacted with human beings like you and me, historically. And so that's, a, that's a, a big difference, and we need to come to grips with that, that this Jesus we talk about is not an idea or an ideal. He's the Son of God, became man to redeem us. So that's something I want to notice about the, the story, that uh, the, the message here, the, the, the sermon that Peter preaches, first of all, is that. And second of all, it was clear that Jesus was a man of striking obedience to God. His life was characterized by good works that he did. He was obedient to God. Thirdly, not only was he obedient to God, not only did he obey the law in every way, but we see that in Jesus we have the the clearest representation of God's character. Walking around, talking, interacting with his opponents, with his enemies, and with his beloved disciples. We have the character of God being reflected here. But there's one final thing I want to notice about this. He says in there, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. Why did he go about healing all those who were oppressed by the devil? Well, that was what he was sent to do for one thing. But it also harkens back to that first promise of the gospel. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, when judgment is just being declared. And when God is speaking to the serpent, pronouncing his judgment upon the serpent, he points out that there will be enmity between your seed, Mr. Serpent, and the seed of the woman. And it will come to blows. And it will come to a head. And and you will crush his heel. And he will crush your head. So there's a promise given all the way back in the, in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 that there's going to be this massive combat between the seed of the woman, who is Jesus, and the seed of the serpent. And you're going to see that in various ways, but the serpent, of course, is the devil himself. So you have the conflict between demonic forces and the seed of the woman. And so it's, this is like leading up to the battle. This is the warm-up stuff where Jesus is going around and what's he doing? He's healing all of those who are oppressed by demons. He's warming up for the real conflict, which is the cross. And so you see this, this conflict already beginning to happen. There is a spiritual battle going on between the Christ, the, the Son of God, the seed of the woman, and the demonic realm. So I think that's part of the reason he talks about that there, is that this is already warming up, that, that uh, the story of Jesus' life and his ministry, not only was he righteous, not only did he do these amazing things, but he was also already exerting authority over demonic forces. That's the life and ministry of Jesus. And then very briefly, the second half of verse 39, the death of Christ. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Put him to death by hanging him on a tree. 
Now, Cornelius was a God-fearing man. He probably had uh, he probably had the Old Testament in his language. He was perhaps he learned Hebrew or Aramaic, and he was reading it uh, in those languages. And he had read that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And so Peter says very simply, they put him to death. This one who was the servant of God, this one who was so obedient, who did all of these things, who was, who was healing the sick, and he was even healing those who were sick with demonic forces. He was doing all of these good, good works, and yet they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, the place of cursing. And that's where he's hung. So Cornelius, if he was learning his Bible, and we, if we've been learning our Bible, we know that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so this blessed one has actually taken on a curse, taken cursing upon himself. But of course, that's not the end of the story. We continue the next couple of verses, starting in verse 40. But God raised him on the third day. And made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. This historical event with this historical man in an historical place that Peter had been an eyewitness to had come to the culmination in this historical man, the son of God, being cursed, put on the place of cursing and punished for nothing he had done wrong hung on a tree, and yet God raised him from the dead. Would God have raised from the dead and restored to everlasting life a man who was cursed? Well, here we have the man who was cursed by being nailed to a tree. We have him paying the full penalty of that curse, taking it entirely upon himself, paying it to the fullest. The curse has been paid. The punishment has been dealt with. So that this one who was cursed and hung on a tree, there's no hope for him. He's the cursed one. And God raises him from the dead. Demonstrating to us, not only his power over death, but demonstrating to us the victory that Jesus achieved. And that 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 sacrificial death of Christ was acceptable to him, to God. And so God raised him from the dead. Restored him to a place of glory. With eternal life. So we can see... That Jesus really was victorious. He didn't just make bold statements about, yeah, I'm going to die. And oh, by the way, when I die, it's going to accomplish all these really great things. Trust me, wink, wink. When God raised him from the dead, we could see God did it. He accepted the payment of Christ. He was raised and he was made to appear to, to Peter and all the rest. So we see the resurrection preached from this very early gospel message to this Gentile group. Jesus has been raised. And just as the historical man lived, did historical things, and was historically put to death, he was historically raised. Not just an idea. Not just, oh, he lives on in our hearts and minds. He was raised from the dead. Restored to life. And it was an historical event. And Peter could look and say, I remember it. I know what the morning was like. I know what I did when I saw it. I know who I talked to. He was there. It was an historical resurrection of Jesus. But that's not it. That is, that is the gospel message, what Christ has done. 
But how does it how does it become applicable to us? How does it how's it going to be applicable for Cornelius? Well, he continues. Verses 42 and 43, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Pause there before I finish verse 43. People people like to talk about, you know, they love what Jesus did and said, and he's a great teacher, but it wasn't until later on that, you know, Paul and the other guys started making big claims about him, like, oh, he actually said he was God, and and those sorts of uh, claims that liberals will make. Jesus claimed to be the judge of the living and the dead. What kind of a good teacher alone would do such a thing? What kind of a man would, would, it would be acceptable for him to say, I'm the judge? But Jesus did. Jesus did because he really was. A lot of times people think they, they like Jesus. They don't, they don't have any idea what Jesus said and did and stood for. They don't have any idea about what his life meant. They don't have any idea of this message that Peter was preaching to Cornelius and the crew there. Verse 43, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So believe in him and you will have the forgiveness of sins through his name. Not his name as in some magic spell or something like that, but through what he has done, what he has accomplished that he's just been talking about. By faith in him, you receive the forgiveness of of sins. You receive right standing before God because of what Christ has done. You're merely connected to him by faith. And he's the one who did it all. He's the one who did it all. And so here you have Peter in preaching this gospel is calling them to faith, calling them to faith and saying, I didn't just come here to tell you a nice story and then go home, but to preach Christ and to call you to believe in Christ, that you too would have the forgiveness of your sins through his name. And then we see this uh, unique uh, conclusion to the story. The Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if you remember back, before we dive into these next four verses, if you remember back to what went on in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes down, you have people speaking in tongues, you have, uh, you have uh, wonderful things going on, and thousands being converted, the gospels being pro- pro- uh, proclaimed, by the apostles, thousands come to faith in Christ on that day. Tongues as a fire. The, the building is being shaken. There's noise. This is a big deal. Right? And so you have the Spirit come down. You have, you have all of these people believing. They were all Jewish. The apostles were all Jewish. The ones preaching were all Jewish. The ones believing were all Jewish. It was a Jewish context. It was there in Jerusalem. And they could all remember back to that. That's how it all started. Well, here we are in this context, and Peter's speaking to the Gentiles. Now, uh, you know, Peter might be thinking, well, you know, the Lord said, don't, don't call common what God has declared to be clean. And so, yeah, I'm going to go talk to the Gentiles. I'm going to even go in their house, which I probably wouldn't have done otherwise. And, and I'm going to preach the gospel of salvation in Christ. And what's going to happen? I hope they believe. They'll be saved. They'll receive the forgiveness of sins. Boy, what happens? Opened Peter's eyes. While Peter was still saying these things, verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. 
the same Holy Spirit of God who had been promised in the Old Testament, who had been received on the day of Pentecost, who had been doing such great things in the nation of Israel, the same Holy Spirit of God falls upon Gentiles. Those who are known as the dogs, the unclean ones, the ones who are outside The Jews dressed differently so they could be distinct from the Gentiles. They ate differently so they could be distinct from the Gentiles. And now the Spirit of God that has fallen on them has fallen on the Gentiles. And so you have the same Holy Spirit falling upon these Gentiles. And so they've they've got to flash back in their minds to Pentecost. These, These brothers, these Jewish brothers who've come with Peter along, if they weren't there at Pentecost, they've heard Peter talk about it. They've heard the church talk about what God did, and they had to have recognized. And just to make sure they recognized, we see in verses 45 and 46, the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. It's like, it's like a many Pentecost in a new location, but it's with Gentiles. But it's the same thing happening. And so in Peter's mind and in the mind of these brothers who were with him there, seeing all this happen, they had to have made the connection. I remember Pentecost and that that, that, that was us. and, And here we are with the Gentiles and that's us. The same Holy Spirit, the same evidence of the Holy Spirit. This is like Pentecost all over again. But with a new people. And so it had to have... It had to have made them aware of what God was doing. It had to have made them aware that when the Lord had said in the vision to Peter, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, No, I've never done that. I've never eaten anything unclean. And then the Lord says to him, Don't, don't call unclean what God has made clean. That had to have been driven home here when they're seeing the same Holy Spirit of God falling upon these Gentiles. And the same evidence of the Spirit of God falling upon these Gentiles. They had to have been taken back to Pentecost. And so, that point was was driven home sharply. These are our brothers. They're, They're not unclean. They're clean in Christ. They're clean in Christ. And we see, of course, as you would expect Peter to do, Verse 47 and 48, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain some days. So you have the same Holy Spirit of God falling upon these Gentile believers. You have the same tongues and evidence of the Spirit of God falling upon these Gentiles. And now it's the same baptism for these Gentiles who are in Christ. So I want to make a couple of points here for us about the universality, the universal nature of the church. Sometimes it's referred to as the Catholic nature of the church, small c, Catholic, meaning universal. The point here is that there has been a great unity created of all people being leveled before God. Paul does a similar thing in Romans where he spends a while talking about the, the, the guilt that a Jew might have of sin before God would look different, perhaps, than the guilt that a Gentile sinner has before God, and yet it's dealt with in Christ. 
We're on the same playing field. And that seems to be what uh, Peter is talking about here as well. And we, we learn from this passage that, that really, if I could take it a little bit farther, don't, don't make a distinction between the clean and the unclean because you're all unclean. We're all unclean because of our sin. And it has been dealt with in Christ. And so salvation is proclaimed to the Jew by faith in Christ. Salvation is proclaimed to the Gentile by faith in Christ. There is a great universality. There's a great unity in the body of Christ. There are distinctions. I've traveled the world, I know. And there is a great unity. There is a great unity amongst Christians. We are a universal church. There is an identity that even though we have brothers and sisters we've not met who live on the opposite side of the globe, they don't speak our language, they don't know anything about us, we don't know anything about them, and we are united in Christ. We are universal. The church is a universal church. And so it's, it's difficult sometimes when we talk about what the church is going to do. Sometimes we mean this body right here. Like, what are we going to do? Right? This church is going to have a meeting about the state of the church at the end of the month. And we're not going to talk about what God is doing in the church all around the globe. We're going to talk about what's going on here. But, and, and that's a legitimate way to think of the church. That's not the only legitimate way to think of the church. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are so different from us, we couldn't even imagine. If they offered us dinner, we might not want to eat what they offered us. If we offered them dinner, they might not want to eat what we offered them. They see things very, very differently. They have a very different experience. Their, their background, their hopes, their, it's all very different. They, they come, the body of Christ is varied. And yet in Christ we are united. And we are one church. And so just a couple of points about the universal nature of the church. I think it, it spurs us to prayer support for the church around the world. That we would want to pray for the church in Pakistan. For the church in North Korea. For the church in South America. For the church everywhere there's a church. When I hear of some missionaries being killed, or when I hear of uh, Africans being uh, killed because they name the name of Christ, that's our loss. Those are our siblings whom we have never met. We will. We've never met them, but they are our siblings. And they've been killed. And so we're concerned, and so we pray for the church all around the world, not just our church. Yes, we pray for our church, and, and we often pray for the gospel ministry in Churchill County and in Nevada, and it, and, and it needs to continue on to all of the United States and all of our globe. God's working through the church. And so secondly, that helps us to think about foreign missions. Foreign missions can take a lot of forms. And one of the forms that it takes is when we send a missionary to support the church on the other side of the, of the globe. Maybe we've got training or we've got other resources that we can pass on that can be of help to the church in some other location. And so we, we think in terms of missions. We want to send missionaries to bring people to Christ in other parts of the world. We want to send missionaries to support that effort of growing and, and developing the church there because those are our brothers and sisters in Christ who have need. And we can meet that need in some ways. And so one way we do that here at Parkside is focusing uh, strongly on foreign missions. And if you come to uh, the meeting, 
State of the Church meeting, you will hear us talk about um, the, the investment from this body into foreign missions over the past year. And, and you'll be amazed at what God has done. You'll be amazed at what God has done. So we invest money, we send missionaries, we were missionaries, the Beheimers were, to go and invest in the body of Christ over there. Because that is a part of our universal church. We are brothers and sisters with them. And connected with those two, we have a, a strong fraternal connection and concern for the church around the world. We're concerned. And so when we hear about our uh, brothers and sisters in Christ in Burundi or in Rwanda or uh, Liberia or other places that find themselves in need. You know, we heard sometime in the last two years, I can't remember, Pastor Boniface in uh, Burundi, uh, they needed a, a roof for a church. And so he asked for us to help with that. And I thought, a roof? I don't know how much that costs. What, 50 grand, 80 grand? I don't know what a roof costs. $600. $600. Okay. <laughs> we could do that. <laughs> we could do that, right? We could put a roof on. And they rejoiced and danced and they sent a video back and we were like, that was $600 for a roof, right? We can, we have concern and we can help out, right? This is kind of what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verses 13 through 15, Paul was talking about raising funds to go help the poor uh, Christians in Jerusalem particularly. He talked about it in, in Romans, he talked about it in Corinthians, and then, and then we see in the book of Acts when he actually takes the money there, etc. Uh, but here's, here's what he says in regard to that, in regard to raising funds from all of these churches that were Jew and Gentile alike all around where he was visiting. He said, for I do not mean that others should be eased financially, and you be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance, financially, etc., at the present time, should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. There is one church, a universal church in this world. And sometimes God gifts a particular corner of the church, as it were, like he has in our country and like he has particularly at Parkside. He's gifted us financially enormously. And one of the reasons he does that is that so that this church who's received this kind of gifting can help meet the needs of the church around the world. Not so that we will have less, but because they have less. So let's meet it. Let's meet that need. We can step in and we can do that. And that is not a great difficulty. Likewise, I mean, that's just financially. But if you think about uh, some of the missions work that goes on in Africa and how few African pastors have been trained in any kind of theological training. They've not set foot in a seminary or Bible school. And if we counted around the room, how many of us have, have done at least a semester in a Bible school or a seminary? There are many, many. We are wealthy. We are wealthy in training. And so... There are lots of, a lot of mission efforts that are trying to get that wealth of training over there. Let's bless the rest of the world, the rest of the, the universal church that is on the other side of the globe. And so there's a, an important way for us to think about God working around the world. I think another uh, perhaps challenging thing for us is when we think about 
how the church is doing and all the churches on the on the wane on the decline perhaps when you think about cultural things going on or look at our nation and and think about the last uh, 20 years or or whatever you think oh the church is on the decline well you ought to read about what the church is doing in china you ought to read about what the church is doing in south america you ought to read about what the church is doing in africa the, yeah there, there perhaps is a decline and i'm not agreeing with that necessarily perhaps there is a decline uh, in the church in the united states but there's an increase and we are all one church. God is working in all of it, not just here, not just here. And so it helps me see that God is sovereignly in charge of all things, and he is really uh, growing his church. And as Stephen preached on a couple weeks ago, Jesus said, I will build my church, and we're seeing it. We see it happen. So just a couple of final points. Uh, I want us to go away thinking about the universal nature, the universality of the church, that we really are one. And we see that, by the way, number two, as evidenced in the gift of the Spirit, even to Gentiles like you and me. The Holy Spirit is freely given to all who believe, even to those who might otherwise be considered unclean. Receive the Holy Spirit of God because they have been made holy by Jesus. Thirdly, this indicates to us that not all roads indeed lead to heaven. Cornelius was a very good man by anyone's standard. He had a great reputation. He was upstanding. And he needed Christ. He needed the gospel. Peter didn't show up and say, wow, but you're already good to go. I mean, you're a really good guy because you're generous and, and all your Jewish neighbors love you. And you've got a great reputation with the people of God and, and you, you deal well with the, the church. And, and it, he showed up and preached the gospel because Cornelius needed Christ also. Jesus Christ is the only way for us to be reconciled to God. And then fourthly, I want us to notice the power of the gospel. The gospel. While Peter is still preaching the gospel, and it, it's almost like he's interrupted. He's still preaching the gospel, and the Spirit falls on everyone listening. It's almost like Peter didn't get to finish his sentence. The gospel was at work. God was using that to redeem this group of sinners, these Gentile sinners, to bring them into the body of Christ. Everyone gathered there believed. Everyone gathered there was saved. The gospel is powerful even to save unclean people like Cornelius and his friends and unclean people like you and like me. Romans 1 tells us the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew first, and also the Greek. And so that's why we preach the gospel. That's why we talk about the gospel. That's why we want to understand the gospel, because that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so we preach that gospel. And it, it may be that you are uh, here today, you're sitting out there thinking that perhaps you are beyond the pale. That, yeah, the, the distinction between Jew and Gentile, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the distinction between uh, me, perhaps, and, and, and Christians is just too great. You are beyond the pale. That you've done something in your past that's so grievous that you're beyond salvation. The message of this passage, which ought to be striking to us. It was striking to Peter and it was striking to those who attended Peter. The message is that anyone who comes to Christ will find him to be a perfect savior, even for them. So I want to close this morning by pointing to Christ 
saying that he has done it. He has obeyed where you have not. He has died so you don't have to pay the penalty for your own sins. And God has raised him from the dead. And anyone who puts their faith in Christ finds their sins dealt with, finds that they have right standing with God, peace before God, finds that Jesus' obedience is actually given to us, it's credited to us, so that we who are on the outside, we who are beyond the pale, we who are those who are unclean and, and sometimes aware that we were unclean, sometimes not, but sometimes, by faith in Christ we are brought right in. And Jesus says, don't call unclean what I have made clean. And sinner in Christ, you will be made clean. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the gospel didn't stay in one location or amongst one people group or one language. It didn't stay in one part of the world, but it came all the way to Fallon, America to be shared with me, to be shared with these in this room and those listening. Thank you for the saving work of Christ. Thank you for the saving gospel of Jesus. We give you glory and we rejoice in the fact that you have taken us who were unclean and declared us to be clean in Christ. And so we are your children by faith. We have union with you by faith. We have union with one another, even those who are different from us, because we are by faith in the body of Christ. Father, I pray that you would bless this congregation. I pray that you would bless this universal church around the world that you would do great things, that you would use the various members of the body of Christ, not just members within one local church, but also members broadly in the universal church all around the world to grow and minister to one another, to bless one another, so that the body might build itself up in love. Thank you that you have included us by grace into that universal body of Christ. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to conclude with uh, these words from 1 Corinthians in a moment, uh, but I also want to remind you that there will be a family up here to pray with you, and they, they would love to uh, spend some time praying with you about requests, uh, about things that are important to you, they're important to them as well. I also want to remind you, uh, if you are a child, you've been taking notes on the blast zone, Miss Brianna will be over here to um, uh, talk with you about that. Likewise, we have a church this evening at 6, and uh, we're, we're talking about the relationship between, uh, between the believer and, uh, and the government, and it's, a, it's an interesting study. We were, it was very well attended last week. Uh, we have two more weeks of that tonight and then one more week. So I would encourage you to join us there for that. We sing, we fellowship. It seems people hang out a whole lot longer after evening church. I don't know why that is. I'm looking at my, you know, I'm thinking it's bedtime and I got to put kids to bed and I'm tired. But we talk when we stay around and talk. So it's a blessed time. I encourage you that direction. These words from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might be rich. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.